22, the promenade or the equestriade. We are indebted to our friend Bill Reynolds for this original idea and it is upon the plan formerly adopted by him that we now proceed to advise as to the maintenance of the distinctions. Let your Schneider baste the trousers together, and when you have put them on, let them be braced to their natural tension, the Schneider should then, with a small pair of scissors, cut out all the wrinkles which offend the eye. The garment, being removed from your person, is again taken to the tailor's laboratory, and the embrasures carefully and artistically fine drawn. The process for walking or riding trousers only varies in these particulars for the one you should stand upright. For the other you should straddle the back of a chair. Trousers cut on these principles entail only two inconveniences, to which everyone with the true feelings of a gentleman would willingly submit. You must never attempt to sit down in your walking trousers, or venture to assume an upright position in your equestrians. For compound fractures in the region of the OS sacrum, or dislocations about the genia patelli are certain to be the results of such rashness. And then songs for the sentimental. Number 6. Thou hast humbled the proud, for my spirit hath bowed more humbly to thee than a ear bowed before, but thy power is past. Thou hast triumphed thy last, and the heart you enslave beats in freedom once more. I have treasured the flower you wore but an hour, and knelt by the mountain where together we've sat, but thy folly and pride I now only deride so. Fair Isabel, take your change out of that, that I loved, and how well, it were madness to tell to one who hath mocked at my maddening despair. Like the white wreath of snow on the Alps' rugged brow. Isabel, I have proved thee as cold as the word fair. Twas thy boast that I sued, that you scorned as I wooed, though thou of my hopes were the mount or art, but to moral I wed Araminda instead so. Fair Isabel, take your change out of that. The last hall, the ponds in Street James's Park were on last Monday drawn with nets, and a large quantity of the fish preserved there carried away by direction of the Chief Commissioner of Woods and Forests. Our talent correspondent, Ben Disraeli, sends us the following squib on the circumstance. Oh, nevermore, Duncanon cried, the spoils of place shall fill our dishes, but though we've lost the loaves we'll take our last sad haul amongst the fishes. General satisfaction, Lord Coventry declared emphatically that the sons, the fathers, and the grandfathers were all satisfied with the present corn laws, had his lordship thought of the herald, he might have added, and the grandmothers also. Advertisement. If the enthusiastic individual who distinguished himself on the OP side of third row in the pit of the late Theatre Royal English Opera House, but now the refuge for the self-baptized Council of Dramatic Literature, can be warranted sober, and guaranteed an umbrella, in the use of which he is decidedly unrivaled, he is requested to apply to the Committee of Management, where he will hear of something to his advantage. Punches, Literature. I, the Hungarian Daughter, a dramatic poem, by George Stevens, 8 vo, pages 294, London, 1841, I.I., introductory, preface to the above, pages 25, I.I.I., supplement to the above, consisting of, opinions of the press, on various works by George Stevens, 8 vo, pages 8, I.V., opinions of the press upon the dramatic merits and actable qualities of the Hungarian Daughter, 8 vo, Closely printed. Pages 16. The blind and vulgar prejudice in favor of Shakespeare, Massainer, and the elder dramatic poets the sickening adulation bestowed upon Sheridan Nulls and Telford, among the moderns and the base, malignant, and selfish partiality of theatrical managers, 
who insist upon performing those plays only which are adapted to the stage whose groveling souls had no sympathy with genius whose ideas are fixed upon gain, had hitherto smothered those blazing illuminati. George Stevens and his syncretsies, had hindered their literary effulgence from breaking through the mists hung before the eyes of the public, by a weak, infatuated adherence to paltry nature, and a silly infatuation in favor of those who copy her. At length, however, the public blushes through its representative, the provincial press, and the above-named critical puffs, with shame the managers are fast going mad with bitter vexation, for having, to use the words of that elegant pleonasm, the introductory preface, by a sort of ex officio hallucination, rejected this and some twenty other exquisite, though unactable dramas, it is a fact, that since the opening of the English Opera House, Mr. Webster has been confined to his room, McCready has suspended every engagement for Drury Lane, and the managers of Covent Garden have gone the atrocious length of engaging sibilance and ammunition from the neighboring market, to pelt the syncretics off the stage, them we leave to their dirty work and their repentance, while we proceed to our delightful task, to prove that the mantle of the Elizabethan poet seems to have fallen upon Mr. Stevens' opinions, page 11 that the Hungarian daughter is quite as good as Nulls's best plays it, page 4, in two places, that it is equal to good it, page 11, that in after years the name of Mr. S. will be amongst those which have given light and glory to their country, it, page 10, to prove, in short, the truth of a hundred other logotions collected and printed by this modest author, we shall quote a few passages from his play and illustrate his genius by pointing out their beauties and office much needed, particularly by certain dullards, the magazine of whose souls are not combustible enough to take fire at the electric sparks shot forth up out of the depths of George Stevens's unfathomable genius. The first gem that sparkles in the play, is where Isabella, the Queen Dowager of Hungary, with a degree of delicacy highly becoming a matron, makes desperate love to Castaldo, an Austrian ambassador. In the midst of her ravings she breaks off, to give such a description of a steeplechase as Nimrod has never equaled, Isabella Hawley, love rides upon a thought, and stays not only to inquire the way, but right or leaps the fence onto the goal, to appreciate the splendor of this image, the reader must conceive love booted and spurred, mounted upon a thought, saddled and bridled, he starts, yo hoiks, what a pace. He stops not to inquire the way, whether he is to take the first turning to the right, or the second to the left but on, on he rushes, clears the fence cleverly, and wins by a dozen lengths, what soul, what mastery, what poetical skill is here, we triumphantly put forth this passage as an instance of the sublime art of sinking in poetry not to be matched by Dibbon or Jacob Jones, love is sublime to a jockey, thought promoted to a racehorse, magnificent but splendid as this island Mr. Stevens can make the force of bathos go a little further. The passage continues, a pause, intervening, to allow breathing in. After the splitting pace with which love has been riding upon thought thus, are your lips free? A smile will make no noise. What ignorance. So, well, I'll to breakfast straight. Again, Isabella. Ha, ha, these forms are mere, mere counterfeits of my image I news heart as are the whirling wainscot and trembling floor, the idea of transferring the seat of imagination from the head to the heart, and causing it to exhibit the wainscot in a pirouette, and the floor in an ague, is highly Shakespeare-esque, and, as the courier is made to say at page 3 of the opinions, 
is worthy of the best days of that noble school of dramatic literature in which Mr. Stevens has so successfully studied. This well-deserved praise the success with which the author has studied, in a school, the models of which were human feelings and nature. We have yet to illustrate from other passages. Mr. Stevens evinces his full acquaintance with nature by a familiarity with her convulsions, whirlwinds, thunder, lightning, earthquakes, and volcanoes are this gentleman's playthings. When, for instance, Rupert is going to be gallant to Queen Isabella, she exclaims, dire lightnings, scoundrel, help, Martinezzi conveys a wish for his nobles to a laugh in order for a sort of court cachination in these pretty terms, blow it about, ye opposite winds of heaven till the loud chorus of derision shake the world with laughter, when he feels uncomfortable at something he is told in the first act, the cardinal complains thus, ha, earthquakes quiver in my flesh, which the Britannia is so good as to tell us is superior to Byron, while the morning herald kindly remarks, that a more vigorous and expressive line was never penned. in five words it illustrates the fiercest passions of humanity by the direst convulsion of nature, opinions. Page 7 A criticism which illustrates the fiercest throes of nonsense, by the direst convulsions of ignorance. Castaldo, being anxious to murder the cardinal with, we suppose, all, means and appliances to boot, asks of heaven a trifling favor, heaven, that looks done, rain I broad deluge first, all teeming earth disgorged I poisons, till the attainted air offend the sense, thou, miscreative hell, let loose calamity. But it is not only in the sublime and beautiful that Mr. Stevens's genius delights, by the opinions. Page 4, his play exhibits sentiments of high morality, quite worthy of the editor of the Church of England Quarterly Review, the author of lay sermons, and other religious works. For example, the lady killer, Castaldo, is hotly loved by the Queen Mother, while he prefers the Queen Daughter. The last and Castaldo are together, the Dowager overhears their billing and cooing, and thus, with great moderation, sends her supposed daughter to, but the author shall speak for himself, ye vipers twain, swift whirlwinds snatch ye both to fire as endless and infinite as hell, may it embrace ye, and burn burn limbs and sinews, souls, until it wither ye both up both in its arms, elegant denunciation, vipers, hell, sinews and souls, has good ever written anything like this, certainly not. Therefore the monthly is right at page 11 of the opinions. Stevens must be equal, if not superior, to the author of Faust. One more specimen of delicate sentiment from the lips of a virgin concerning the lips of her lover will fully establish the syncretic code of moral taste, C-Z-R-I-N-A faintly. Do breathe heat into me, lay thy warm breath onto my bloodless lips, I stagger, I I must, C-A-S-T-A-L-D-O, in mercy, what, C-Z-R-I-N-A, Wednesday. The lady ends, most maidenly, by fainting in her lover's arms. A higher flight is elsewhere taken. Isabella urges Castaldo to murder Martinezzi, in a sentence that has a powerful effect upon the feelings, for it makes us shudder as we copy it it will cause even our readers to tremble when they see it. The idea of using blasphemy as an instrument for shocking the minds of an audience, is as original as it is worthy of the sort of genius Mr. Stevens possesses, alluding to a poniard. Isabella says, she fit where God and nature prompt your hand, that is to say, in the breast of a cardinal, the vulgar, who set up the commonplace standards of nature, probability, moral propriety, and respect for such sacred names as they are careful never to utter, except with reverence, 
will perhaps condemn Mr. Stevens the aforesaid, editor of the Church of England Quarterly Review, and author of other religious works with a mitigated severity. They must not be too hasty. Mr. Stevens is a genius, and cannot, therefore, be held accountable for the meaning of his ravings, be they even blasphemous, more than that he is a syncretic genius, and his associates, by the designation they have chosen, by the terms of their agreement, are bound to cry each other up to defend one another from the virulent attacks of common sense and plain reason. They are sworn to stick together, like the bundle of rods in Aesop's fable. Mr. Stevens, their chief, the god of their idolatry, island consequently, more mad, or, according to their creed, a greater genius, than the rest, and evidently writes passages he would shudder to pen, if he knew the meaning of them, upon paper, therefore, the syncretics are not accountable beings, and when condemned to the severest penalties of critical law, must be reprieved on the plea of literary insanity. It may be said that we have descended to mere detail to illustrate Mr. Stevens' peculiar genius that we ought to treat of the grand design, or plot of the Hungarian daughter, but we must confess, with the deepest humility, that our abilities are unequal to the task. The fable soars far beyond the utmost flights of our poor conjectures, of our limited comprehension. We know that at the end there are one case of poisoning, one ditto of stabbing with intent, and see, and one ditto of sudden death. Hence we conclude that the play is a tragedy, but one which cannot be intended for an acting play. Preliminary Preface P.1 Of course as a tragedy, yet so universal is the author's genius, that an adaptation of the Hungarian daughter, as a broad comedy, has been produced at the dramatic author's theater, having been received with roars of laughter. The books before us have been expensively got up, in the Hungarian daughter. Rivers of type flow through meadows of margin, to the length of nearly 300 pages. Mr. Stevens is truly a most spirited printer and publisher of his own works, but the lavish outlay he must have incurred to obtain such a number of favorable notices so many columns of superlative praise shows him to be, in every sense like the Prince of Puffers, George Robbins, utterly regardless of expense, the works third and fourth upon our list. Doubtless cost, for the copyright alone, in ready money, a fortune. It is astonishing what pecuniary sacrifices genius will make, when it purloins the trumpet of fame to puff itself into temporary notoriety. Inquest extraordinary. The Whigs, who long were bold and strong, on Monday night went dead. The jury found this verdict sound, destroyed by low-priced bread, an exclusive appointment. It is with the most rampant delight that we rush to announce that a special warrant has been issued, appointing our friend and protege, the gallant and jocular Sithorpe, to the important office of Beadle and Crier to the House of Commons a situation which has been created from the difficulty which has hitherto been found in inducing strangers to a withdraw during a division of the House. This responsible office could not have been conferred upon anyone so capable of discharging its onerous duties as the Colonel. We will stake our hump, that half a dozen words of the gallant Demosthenes would, at any time had the effect of the great cricket match at Street Stevens. First innings, the return match between the Reform and Carlton clubs has been the theme of general conversation during the past week. Some splendid play was exhibited on the occasion, and, although the result has realized the anticipations of the best judges, it was not achieved without considerable exertion. It will be remembered that, the last time these celebrated clubs met, the Carlton men succeeded in scoring one notch more than their rivals who, however, immediately challenged them to a return match, and have been diligently practicing for success since that time. 
the players assembled in Lord's Cricket Ground on Tuesday last, when the betting was decidedly in favor of the cons, whose appearance and manner was more confident than usual, while, on the contrary, the Reds seemed desponding and shy. On tossing up, the Whigs succeeded in getting first innings, and the Tories dispersed themselves about the field in high glee, flattering themselves that they would not be out long. Wellington, on producing the ball a genuine Duke excited general admiration by his position, Ripon officiated as bowler at the other wicket, Sethorpe acted as long stop, and the rest found appropriate situations, Lefevre was chosen umpire by mutual consent, Spencer and Clan Ricard went in first, Spencer, incautiously trying to score too many notches for one of his hits, was stumped out by Ripon, and Melbourne succeeded him. Great expectations had been formed of this player by his own party, but he was utterly unable to withstand Wellington's rapid bowling, which soon sent him to the right about. Clan Ricard was likewise run out without scoring a notch. Lansdowne and Broom were now partners at the wickets, but Lansdowne did not appear to like his mate, on whose play it is impossible to calculate. Coventry, the short slip, excited much merriment, by a futile attempt to catch this player out which terminated in his finding himself horizontal and mortified. Wellington, having bowled out Lansdowne, resigned his ball to Peel, who took his place at the wicket with a smile of confidence, which frightened the bat out of the hands of Phillips. The next red, Dundas and Leibouchery were now the batman. Leibouchery is a very intemperate player. One of Sandon's slow balls struck his thumb, and put him out of temper, whereupon he hit about at random, and knocked down his wicket. Walkley took his bat but apparently not liking his position. He hit up and caught himself out. O'Connell took his place with a lounging swagger, but his first ball was caught by the immortal Sithorpe, who uttered more puns on the occasion than the oldest man present recollected to have heard perpetrated in any given time. Russell who, by the by, excavated several quarts of heavy during his innings was the last man the Reds had to put in. He played with care, and appeared disposed to keep hold of the bat as long as possible. He was however, quietly disposed of by one of Peel's inexorable balls. Thus far the game has proceeded. The cons have yet to go in. The general opinion island that they will not remain in so long as the Reds, but that they will score their notches much quicker. Indeed, it was commonly remarked, that no players had ever remained in so long, and had done so little good with all, as the reformites. Betting is at 100-5 in favor of the Carlton men and anxiety is on tiptoe to know the result of the next innings. The Tories are exulting in their recent victory over the poor Whigs, whom they affirm have been tried, and found wanting, a trial, indeed, where all the jurors were witnesses for the prosecution. One thing is certain, that the country, as usual, will have to pay the costs, for a Tory verdict will be certain to carry them. The Whigs should prepare a motion for a new trial, on the plea that the late decision was that of decidedly unpleasant. Kiss the broad moon, M-A-R-D-I-N-U-Z-Z-I, go kiss the moon, that's more, sirs, than I can dare, tease worse than madness hasn't she her man there, curious coincidence, the morning advertiser has a paragraph containing a report of an extraordinary indisposition under which a private of the Royal Guards is now suffering, it appears he lately received a violent kick from a horse, on the back of his head, since which time his hair has become so sensitive that he cannot bear anyone to approach him or touch it. On some portion being cut off by stratagem, he evinced the utmost disgust, accompanied with a volley of oaths. This may be wonderful in French hair, but it is nothing to the present sufferings of the Whigs in England. 
the Bartholomew Fair Show folks. Punch having been chosen by the unanimous voice of the public the Arbiter Elegantiarum in all matters relating to science, literature, and the fine arts and from his long professional experience, being the only person in England competent to regulate the public amusements of the people, the Lord Mayor of London has confided to him the delicate and important duty of deciding upon the claims of the several individuals applying for licenses to open show booths during the approaching Bartholomew Fair. Punch having called to his assistants Sir Peter Laurie and Peter Borthwith, proceeded, on last Saturday, to hold his inquisition in a highly respectable court in the neighborhood of West Smithfield. The first application was made on behalf of Richardson's booth, by two individuals named Melbourne and Russell. Punch, on what grounds do you claim, Mel, on those of long occupancy and respectability, my lord, Russ, we employ none but the very best of actors, my lud all, bold speakers as my late one-eroded manager, Muster Richardson, used to call him, Mel, we had the best scenery and decorations, the most popular performances Russ, Ham, aside to Mel, best say nothing about our performances, Mel, Punch, pray what situations do you respectively hold in the booth, Mel, am principal manager, and do the heavy tragedy business, my friend, here, is the stage manager and low comedy buffer, who takes the kicks, and blows the trumpet of the establishment. Punch. What is the nature of the entertainments you have been in the habit of producing? Russ. Oh. The real legitimate drama, a new way to pay old debts. Raising the wind. A gentleman in difficulties. Where shall I dine? And, honest thieves. We mean to commence the present season with all in the wrong. And, his last legs. Punch. Humph. I am sorry to say I have received several complaints of the manner in which you have conducted the business of your establishment for several years. It appears you put forth bills promising wonders, while your performances have been of the lowest possible description. Russ. Sell me. Bob. There ain't a word of truth in it. If there's anything we takes pride on, tease our gentility. Punch. You have degraded the drama by the introduction of card shufflers and thimble rig imposters. Russ. We deny the thimble rigging in totum, my lud, that was brought out at Stanley's opposition booth. Punch, at least you were a promoter of state conjuring and ledger domain tricks on the stage. Russ, only a little hanky-panky, my lud, the people likes it, they loves to be cheated before their faces. One, two, three presto be gone, I'll show your ludship as pretty a trick of putting a piece of money in your eye and taking it out of your elbow, as you ever beheld. Has your lugship got such a thing as a good shilling about you? Pon my honor, I'll return it. Punch, be more respectful, sir, and reply to my questions. It appears further, that several respectable persons have lost their honesty in your booth. Russ, very little of that air commodity is ever brought into it, my lug. Punch, and, in short, that you and your colleagues' hands have been frequently found in the pockets of your audience. Russ, only in a professional way. My love strictly professional. Punch. But the most serious charge of all is that, on a recent occasion, when the audience hissed your performances, you put out the lights, let in the swell mob, and raised a cry of, no corn laws. Russ. Why? My love. On that pint I admit there was a slight row. Punch. Enough. Sir. The court considers you have grossly misconduct yourself, and refuses to grant you license to perform. Mel. But, my lord. I protest I did nothing. Punch. So everybody says, Sir, you are therefore unfit to have the management of next to my own the greatest theater in the world. 
You may retire, Mel, to Russ. Oh, Johnny, this is your work with your confounded hanky-panky, Russ. No, twas you that did it, we have been ruined by your laziness. What is to become of us now, Mel? Alas, where shall we dine? The next individual who presented himself to obtain a license for the Carlton Club equestrian troupe was a strange-looking character who gave his name as Sithorpe. Punch, what are you, sir? Said Clown to the ring, my lord and principal performer on the salt box. I provide my own paint and pipe clay, make my own jokes, and laugh at them too. I do the ground and lofty tumbling, and ride the wonderful donkey all for the small sum of fifteen bob a week. Punch, you have been represented as a very noisy and turbulent fellow, said meek as a lamb, my lord, except when I am on the sawdust, there I acknowledge, I do crow pretty loudly but that's in the way of business, and your lordship knows that we public jokers must pitch it strong sometimes to make our audience laugh, and bring the browns into the treasury, after all, my lord, I am not the rogue many people take me for, more the other way, I can assure you, and, though to my share some human errors fall, look in my face, and you'll forget them all, punch, a strong appeal, I must confess, you shall have your license, the successful claimant having made his best bow to Commissioner Punch, withdrew, whistling the national air of a fellow named Peel, who has been for many years in the habit of exhibiting as a quack doctor, next applied for liberty to vent his nostrums at the fair, on being questioned as to his qualifications, he shook his head gravely, and, without uttering a word, placed the following card in the hands of Punch, to the gullible public, Sir Rhubarb Gill. MD and LSD Professor of Political Chemistry and Conservative Medicine to the Carlton Club, Physician in Ordinary to the King of Hanover, Inventor of the People's Patent Sliding Stomach Pump, of the Poor Man's Anti-Breakfast and Dinner Waste Belt, and of the New Royal Extract of Toryism, as prescribed for, and lately swallowed by, the most illustrious personage in these dominions, Sir Rhubarb begs further to state that he practices national tooth-drawing and bleeding to an unlimited extent, and undertakes to cure the consumption of bread without the use of a fixed plaster, N.B. No connection with the corn doctor who recently vacated the concern now occupied by Sir R.P. hours of attendance, from 10 till 4 each day, at his establishment, Downing Street, a private entrance for N.P. single quote as round the corner, Bend Israeli, the proprietor of the learned pig, applied for permission to exhibit his animal at the fair. A license was unhesitatingly granted by his lordship, who rightly considered that the exhibition of the extraordinary talents of the pig and its master, would do much to promote a taste for polite literature amongst the Smithmeld, Kenny Boys, a poor old man, who called himself Sir Francis Burdett, applied for a license to exhibit his wonderful dissolving views, the most remarkable of which were, the Hestings in Covent Garden changing to a resist inner in Drury Lane, and, the Patriot in the Tower changing to the Renegade in the Carlton. It appeared that the applicant was, at one time, in a respectable business, and kept, the old glory, a favorite public house in Westminster, but, falling into bad company, he lost his custom and his character, and was reduced to his present miserable occupation, punch, in pity for the wretched petitioner and fully convinced that his childish tricks were perfectly harmless, granted him a license to exhibit. Licenses were also granted to the following persons in the course of the day, Sir E. L. Bolluer, to exhibit his own portrait, in the character of Alcibiades, painted by himself, Dr. Bowering, to exhibit six Tartarian chiefs, 
caught in the vicinity of the Seven Dials, with songs, translated from the original Irish comic, by the doctor, Emerson Tennant, to exhibit his wonderful cosmorama, or views of anywhere and everywhere, in which the striking features of Ireland, Greece, Belgium, and Whitechapel will be so happily confounded, that the spectator may imagine he beholds any or all of these places at a single glance, Masros, Stevens, Herod, and company to exhibit, gratis, a syncretic tragedy, with fireworks and tumbling, according to a law, between the acts, to be followed by a lecture on the unactable drama, capital illustration, at the recent fracas in Pall Mall, between Captain Fitzroy and Mr. Shepard, the latter, like his predecessor of old, the gentle Shepard, performed sundry vague evolutions with a silver-mounted cane, and requested Captain Fitzroy to consider himself horsewhipped, not entertaining quite so high an opinion of his adversary's imaginative powers, the captain floored the said descendant of gentleness, thereby ably illustrating the precise difference of the real and ideal, the heir of APPLEBIDE, chapter II, shows how Agamemnon became disgusted with number one, and the awful consequences which succeeded, poor old John's alarm was succeeded by astonishment, for without speaking a word, Agamemnon bounced into his bedchamber, he thought the room the most miserable looking room he had ever entered, though the floor was covered with a thick turkey carpet, a bright fire was blazing in the grate, and everything about seemed fashioned for comfort, he threw himself into an easy chair, and kicking off one of his pumps, crossed his legs, and rested his elbow on the table, he looked at his bed it was a French one a mountain of feathers, covered with a thick, white Marseille quilt, and festooned over with a drapery of rich crimson damask, I'll have a four-post tomorrow, growled Columpsion, French beds are mean-looking things, after all, Stuffwell has the fellow chair to this one chair does look strange, I wonder it has never struck me before, but it is surprising what strange eyed as a man has, and Columpsion fell asleep, it was broad day when Columpsion awoke, the fire had gone out, and his feet were as cold as ice, he as he is married there's no necessity for concealment he swore two or three naughty oaths, and taking off his clothes, hurried into bed in the hope of get, 